Hey everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. If you follow the news closely, that sitting US President Joe Biden quickly wrap up his trip in the Middle East. Now this time, for Joe Biden, it's the first time after become the president that visited multiple countries in the Middle East. He started the journey in the nation of Israel, but he wrapped up the nation of Saudi Arabia. Not only that he was generating more noises during the trip, but also this time he created was simultaneously another organization which is called I2U2. People are doubting and questioning if Joe Biden's trip in in the Middle East were rational or reasonable enough. But meanwhile, some of the countries, for example, China and India, are making the question marks regarding the next strategic moves under Joe Biden. So that's why today we are going to dive into the conversation regarding Joe Biden's Middle East policy and also this so-called new quad geopolitical strategy as well. Now, join our show today, ladies and gentlemen, is Mr. Mohammed Zishan. Now, Mr. Zishan is an editor-in-chief of Freedom Gazette and the author of an amazing new book called Flying Blind, India's Quest for a Global Leadership. Mr. Zijan, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you for having me, Will. Absolutely um, honored to be here with you. No problem, sir. The pleasure is oh my. Now, let's get to the first question right away. Again, Mr. Zijan, as I mentioned before, sitting U.S. President Joe Biden quickly wrap up his trip recently in the Middle East. Now, he created, or let me be careful, he rallied another brand new quad organization. It's called I2U2. Some people were questioning and doubting the rationality behind Joe Biden's trip in the Middle East, and they were still questioning his effective method in Saudi Arabia. Can you help us understand the first question, why the trip in the Middle East? And the second, what was the purpose to create this so-called I2U2? Thank you very much. I mean, both of those are, are very pertinent questions, I think. Um, you know, for a first one, on a lighter note, maybe I should say that it's not possible to have a U.S. president and, you know, he doesn't travel to the Middle East. All the U.S. presidents do travel to the Middle East. Uh, that's where U.S. foreign policy has traditionally gone to, you know, basically struggle and, uh, and crash and burn. Um, and, you know, I, I think in many ways, what's interesting about this trip to the Middle East is that it was a very hesitant one. I mean, as, as you mentioned, a lot of people were not sold on the rationale and whether it was a trip that should have been taken at all. To be honest, I think even President Biden had his own doubts uh, in the sense that, you know, before he came to power, he talked about making the Saudi crown prince a pariah. He talked about cutting Saudi Arabia loose. Uh, he talked about, uh, you know, holding them accountable for Jamal Khashoggi and, uh, you know, all the other human rights violations that have taken place. Uh, but before he left for, you know, his trip to the Middle East, he kind of wrote an, an, an opinion piece, I think in the Washington Post it might have been, where he sort of did say that, you know, I understand the criticism, uh, you know, some of it is legit and it's valid, 
But, you know, I've got to go there because it's in U.S. interest that I go to the Middle East. Mm. And the reason that that happened was because, you know, with the, the, the invasion of Ukraine uh, and the sanctions on Russia, there is an energy crisis happening in the West right now. I mean, much of Europe is right now struggling with shortage of fuel and energy. Uh, there is a heat wave happening. So that has kind of increased the demand for energy. Uh, there is an inflation crisis happening both in the U.S. as well as in Europe. And in many ways, really, the Middle East is the one part of the world that can kind of step up to the plate uh, in terms of maybe, you know, filling up the gap that Russia is leaving uh, the sanctions on Russia are leaving. And so I, th I think what Biden hoped to do uh, at the very bare minimum was to kind of win over the Gulf monarchs and, uh, you know, the Middle East in general, uh, keep them out of the, you know, the Russian and Chinese camps. Um, but, but also at the same time, try and find a way by which you can substitute Russian energy uh, imports with Middle Eastern energy imports uh, and, and try and, you know, create a substitute source for uh, energy from the Middle East for Europe in particular uh, and, and, you know, ease the inflation uh, concerns that, are, you know, that have taken, uh, taken the world by storm. Mm. Um, your second question was, was about the I2U2 and, you know, why this was, why this was created. Um, the I2U2 came to being... Uh, in some sense in October last year when there was a meeting between the foreign ministers of the four countries, Israel, India, the US and the UAE. Uh, and the rationale behind this was, well, at that point in time, the rationale was, you know, you had the Abraham Accords that had just taken place. Mm. Uh, Israel and its Arab neighbors had suddenly started talking to each other. And so, you know, the Biden administration kind of wanted to continue or carry on that momentum uh, and bring together Israel and, you know, uh, the Arab uh, uh, neighborhood, which really in this case was just represented by the UAE, uh, and, and try and find a way to build uh, on the gains that were made in, in the diplomacy that, uh, that had taken place starting in 2020. Um, and India was kind of, uh, you know, tagging along in some sense uh, as a member of the Eastern Quad or the Indo-Pacific Quad. And, and so I think that India's presence there was kind of to bring that dimension into say, you know, the Indo-Pacific Quad is kind of about standing up to China and countering mm -hmm. China. Uh, and so bringing in India was in some sense meant to counterbalance uh, China's presence and China's influence uh, and, and link in some sense the I2U2 or the Middle East Quad to the South, you know, Southeast Asian uh, or the, or the Indo-Pacific Quad. Uh, and this year, uh, you know, Biden, when he went to the Middle East to, to essentially take the I2U2 forward, there was the added incentive of also countering Russia mm. uh, in the aftermath of, of the Ukrainian invasion. Uh, and so while the focus might have been on China last year, this year, Russia plus China became the focus of, of the I2U2, at least from America's perspective. Mr. Zijan, during the previous answer that you touched on so many uh, good points. Now, as a matter of fact, that before we dive into a little bit deeper regarding this I2U2, I want to bring something so tangible to both of us. 
We know the year of 2022, as a matter of fact, it's rather crucial for Joe Biden. Not only we're looking at this midterm election in November, but also this could be the foreshadow of 2024 presidential election. Now, in terms of what matters not only to the audience and the voters in the US, but also to the international audience, is one buzzword, which is economy. Economy really plays a significant role, I guess, not only in the U.S., but also across the continent. But to kill, uh, particularly when we look at the U.S. current economic situation, as we mentioned before, inflation was really high. The, uh, the uh, approval rating of Joe Biden dropped drastically compared with all of his predecessors. Now, my question to you is, again, you mentioned because the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi that took place several years ago, and once Joe Biden called this country called a pariah. So in other words, he was not really a friend of the country of Saudi Arabia, but this time for the benefit of the oil and energy resources, he was willing to fist bump with the leader of the country. So my question to you is, for the sake of economy, is Joe Biden or has Joe Biden completely abandoned the human rights belief or the human rights support? So in other words, at this moment, as long as I can get midterm election for the Democrats winning the House or the representative, as well as paving the way for 2024, who cares about this killing whole journalist internationally? Why don't we talk about this domestic issue, which topped the agenda? How would you explain that? Well, I think there are two competing issues uh, at hand right now as far as U.S. domestic politics are concerned. And I think Joe Biden, in some sense, is trying to figure out which one is going to be more important mm. to the electorate and, you know, which one is going to be less important. Uh, one is, of course, the economy and, you know, inflation and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, people might just say that, you know, at the end of the day, as long as you're able to take care of the economy, maybe they're not going to really care whether the president is tough on human rights or weak mm. on human rights. Uh, and and that's 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 the calculation that Joe Biden, in some sense, is making right now. But the other side of of, of this debate, particularly within the Democratic Party, uh, is that younger Democrats, more progressive Democrats, you know, they they're sort of disappointed with with Joe Biden and the fact that. So I think you know, on the other hand, you've got uh, the younger, more progressive Democrats, you know, so, kind of disappointed with Joe Biden for having let go of some of these more progressive causes, uh, uh, human rights abroad and, and so on. Uh, and, you know, more recently, I think just this morning, there was there was a report in the U.S. media that said that some Democrats are actually considering running against Joe Biden in the mm. 2024 elections, uh, which would be a very rare occurrence, really, to be honest. Uh, and, uh, and so certainly there is this undercurrent of displeasure within uh, the younger sections of the Democratic Party. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think Joe Biden is kind of trying to figure out, well, is are the younger Democrats more representative of the American electorate? Uh, or is this more centrist, you know, uh, pragmatic, real politic position more rep representative and reflective of the American electorate? Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the midterms will probably tell us, uh, 2024 is certainly going to tell us, but my sense is that, you know, traditionally speaking, American politics, America and American people are traditionally far more conscious of human rights causes mm. than most other countries around the world. This is, 
you know, it's something that dates back to World War One, and you know, Germany's attacks on Western Europe, particularly Belgium. Uh, it, it kind of did rub America the wrong way, and even though President Woodrow Wilson for the longest time actually tried to stay out of World War One, mm. once the American press started talking about Germany's atrocities, uh, Woodrow Wilson essentially had to enter the war, and you know that's kind of, in in my mind, that sort of did you know sort of flick a switch in American foreign policy thinking. And so American people and, you know, Washington, D.C. does have a lobby uh, of human rights activists that is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. But at the same time, you know, when the American economy is just coming out of the pandemic and, you know, there are inflation concerns, uh, people are struggling to meet their end or, or make their ends meet. Uh, people are struggling, especially the middle class is struggling uh, to gain that social and economic mobility that they've enjoyed, uh, you know, in the in the previous generation. I think in, in the current scenario, uh, I think Biden is probably going to be proved right that the economy uh, is, is, is going to be more important to the American voters than, than human rights causes. Uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but that's going to depend on whether Biden is actually going to be able to get the American economy mm. to bounce back, uh, whether his, his discussion and negotiation with the Middle East uh, is, is actually going to bring down inflation. Uh, there are certain logistical and other concerns that still need to be met. I, I, you know, th there are people who say that the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia in particular, and its Gulf allies uh, don't have as yet the capacity to uh, increase uh, oil production enough to bring mm. down prices around the world. And you also got to remember that there is still supply chain disruption going on uh, around the world. Uh, you know, trade is not back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, China is still kind of getting out of its its lockdown and Omicron-induced lockdown uh, phase. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a multi-dimensional economic crisis. Uh, you know, you can't go to Saudi Arabia and say that just because you've met the Saudi crown prince, you're, you're going to be able to find a solution to inflation. Mm. That's not going to happen. Uh, and so if, if Biden is not able to get that to happen, then, you, you know, he's going to have to contend with displeasure on both sides. Uh, you know, the human rights activists uh, and, and progressive Democrats are certainly going to be annoyed with him. Uh, and at the same time, the American middle class voters are also going to be annoyed with him because he couldn't fix the economy in time. Mr. Zijon, again, let's go back to this domestic as well as international issues with another country called China, which you mentioned many times. We know that since Joe Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, was the president, that the trade war was actually one of the hot topics, not only for the American voters, but also for international audience as well. And also, we know that China has been very active in sending delegates, especially important envoys and representatives, to the, to the Middle East. Now, this time, let's take a look at the journey of Joe Biden. He started in the country of Israel, and then he went to Palestine. Now, keep in mind that we know the tension, especially along the Gaza border between Israel and Palestine, has been very hot and bitter every single year. Why should I say every single day? Single day, but also during his 
uh, visitation to Palestine that he mentioned that something was rather sensitive, which called a two-state solution. And we know that such phrase caused the entire firestorm within the international communities. And then he moved on to Saudi Arabia. Now, keep in mind, China, as I mentioned before, has always been interested in generating noises and building allies and partnership with the Middle East. So, Mr. Um, Zishan, my next question is, again, not only for Joe Biden, but also for the U.S. government, how much credibility does the government have today? So, in other words, how much can the countries in the Middle East, for example, Israel, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, again, many more, could trust the U.S. it's able to bring peace or at least do some effective work among the countries today or in the long run? Help us. I mean, the Middle East is always going to be very tricky for the U.S. Uh, because it has to contend with the infamous legacy of the Iraq war and, you know, decades of uh, unpopularity. Uh, but... You know, Palestine is, is, is not not exactly a change of policy as far as uh, Biden is concerned. I mean, uh, for, for decades, American presidents have been talking about, uh, you know, the two-state solution. Donald Trump moved the needle a little bit away, uh, you know, by building the embassy in Jerusalem That's and right. essentially pivoting towards Israel. Uh, but Donald Trump was not... Uh, you know, explicitly against a two-state solution either. Uh, it's just that he probably did not did not speak up for Palestinian rights quite as much as you know Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, or Joe Biden uh, have done. Uh, but it's not a significant uh, change in in policy, so to speak. Uh, I think what has been a significant change in policy, uh, particularly in the post George W. Bush years, uh, is that. America is in a sort of a withdrawal mode. Uh, you know, at one point in time, America was essentially giving itself the role of playing the balance of power policemen, uh, trying to make sure that there is a balance of power between different factions and groups in the Middle East. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, after the Iraq war uh, and the debacle of the Iraq war, essentially, uh, the mood changed essentially not just in Washington, but also across the U.S. Mm. Uh, and, and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden, all of them have essentially been following a template of withdrawal from the Middle East in particular. The pivot to Asia in some sense and, and giving more importance to China, etc. was a part of that. You know, it was, it was essentially arguing uh, we've spent too much of time and money in the Middle East and also lost a lot of lives in the Middle East. We're not going to get anywhere. China is the next great challenge. And so, you know, why don't we just shift focus to Asia and, and the Indo-Pacific? Uh, and so essentially that was that was the, the big major policy shift, I think, uh, as far as America was, was, was concerned. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as you mentioned, I think that China's rise is also being felt in, in the Middle East. Uh, mm. uh, you can walk into the Dubai Mall today and you will find signboards written in Chinese, uh, you know, in, in Mandarin. And, you know, you'll find a large number of Chinese tourists. Uh, a number of the, the, the property and real estate uh, in, in downtown Dubai uh, are essentially owned by Chinese landlords. Mm. So there is increasing Chinese presence and influence in the Middle East uh, and particularly in the Gulf. 
and uh, and I think America kind of realizes that it cannot completely withdraw from the Middle East because essentially there would be a power vacuum that China would then uh, fill in. Mm. So that I, I think in some senses now the uh, you know the the uh, the tacit admission from the Biden administration is that America cannot leave the Middle East completely, but America has to find a way to re-engage with the Middle East. Uh, in in a manner that would be much more in tune with the times today, and uh, in order to do that, I think that what what America has tried to do is to kind of bring the Gulf, the Arabs, and 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 the Israelis together. Uh, Iran is is now seen as as the uh, great big enemy. Instead, uh, I think Iran's position in American foreign policy has increased uh, over a period of time. Mm. Uh, Donald Trump withdrawing from the nuclear deal only made that worse. Mm. Uh, and so, I think American strategy right now is to essentially bridge the gap between the Arabs and the Israelis, uh, which is which is anyway happening organically for economic and geopolitical reasons. Uh, and then build a coalition uh, which would be essentially under the umbrella of American influence uh, and and away from Chinese and Russian influence. Uh, and then, you know, build build this coalition, uh, you know, in order to balance against uh, Iran's rise, uh, essentially as, as, as a nuclear power state. Um, that, I think, is, is where American foreign policy is going right now. Uh, in terms of credibility uh, that America holds, I mean, American economy is still much larger than Chinese economy, mm. and America's military presence is much, much more than uh, you know ch uh, Chinese military presence. America still has you know bases in in, in the Gulf area. Uh, China is only just beginning to build overseas bases in different parts of the world. America's presence is is vastly much more, uh, and so in 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 that sense, I think that the Gulf uh, and and Israel, uh, you know, uh, and and the Arabs. Uh, would like to have American presence and American influence continue. Uh, if for nothing else, then at least to ensure national security interests and 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 counter the threat, uh, you know, emanating from Iran, which is not something that China would really be able to do. China can can perhaps fill in with trade deals and investment deals and all of that, but militarily speaking, I think America is still the preeminent power. So whether they like it or not, I think the Arabs, uh, you know, and the Israelis. Uh, are are essentially uh, you, you know beholden to any American administration, uh, and uh, and you know would would have to go with with what, what Washington wants. But at the same time, they're certainly going to try and and you know balance American influence with you know economic deal making with with the Chinese. But Mr. Zishan, let's put ourselves in this reality today that the relationship between China and Iran today, keep in mind, for Mr. Wang Yi from the Chinese government were sent to Iran a few years ago, or to be precise, I guess last year, to visit the representatives and also the Iranian government. Again, during that visit, it was rather crucial for China and also for the country of Iran. But meanwhile, if you look at another side of the story, the younger generations in Iran, especially belong to the Islamic groups, they were chanting death to America every day on the street. And we've seen throughout the social media, those Iranians, they were burning the American flags and they were escorting out the American citizens out of the country and also especially part of the American NGOs. Now, with that said, I want to know that if the Joe Biden's or American government's policy can be effective, now, don't you think it's 
better that for the U.S. to leave Iran alone for a while, despite the fact the Iranian government could develop nuclear weapons secretively. But at this moment, isn't it more crucial for the U.S. government to focus on、uh, to focus on building more allies in terms in terms of making more friends? What do you say to that? That's going to be very difficult,、uh, particularly in the Middle East, where everybody hates each other.、Uh, and you know, at this point in time, I think Iran's nuclear program is widely accepted as a threat by American allies in the Middle、mm. East.、Uh, you know, Israel and and the Gulf in in particular. I mean, you've had a situation a, a few years back, I think in 2019, where、uh, you know missiles were launched into oil facilities in in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and some people believe that that came from Iran.、Uh, you know,、uh, others believe that it was it was simply financed by Iran. But Iran's hand in that was, by and large,、uh, pretty clear. Uh, and uh, and so, in that sense, I think that for for America, it's very important to keep a balance of power between Iran and and its、uh, rivals in the Middle East,、uh, lest it blow up into a full blown confrontation.、Mm-hmm. And and for as long as America is is militarily involved, or to put it differently, there is a threat of American military intervention. Uh, I I think that there there is、uh, you know a, a higher possibility、mm. that Iran and its rivals would not go into full blown war,、uh, but in its absence, I think that you know there is there is a, a you know in America's absence there is a higher li- likelihood I would say of instability and and conflict、uh, in, in the Middle East. As ironic as that sounds, given the Iraq war and you know all of that that has happened. Uh, it, it it is very likely that the Middle East would be more unstable if America were to withdraw completely.、Mm. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, America made a huge mistake in pulling out of, or Donald Trump, I should say, made a huge mistake in pulling out of the Iranian nuclear deal、uh, because Iran was under a, a period of transformation at that point in time. I mean. I think Iranian people and Iranian society are much more globalized than most people in the West realize. And so, when the nuclear deal, you mentioned that the Iranians were out on the street protesting and burning American flags, but when the nuclear deal was signed under President Obama, Iranians took out to the streets with American flags, actually waving them and you know、mm-hmm. celebrating it, and you know essentially hoping for. A new era of economic engagement with America, and you know the end of、uh, the sanctions regime.、Mm. And I think that that Iran and the Middle East and the world were moving towards that. You know, there was no evidence that Iran was during that period of time building a nuclear weapon.、Uh, and、uh, for Donald Trump to come in and essentially reverse that period of progress was a huge strategic、uh, mistake, as far as America is concerned. And it opened the possibility for China to come in and and insert itself much more,、uh, you know, rigidly,、uh, and it it hardened,、uh, you know, political positions in Tehran.、Uh, Hassan Rouhani was out of power. The moderates essentially were 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 shunned.、Uh, the Ayatollah became much more powerful.、Uh, the hardliners came back to power with with President Raisi. Uh, so there was a tectonic shift essentially in Iranian politics at that point. I mean, I think that young Iranians who had hoped for a return to globalization and you know who had hoped for more engagement with America 
they felt much more let down they felt you know they felt betrayed essentially uh, and uh, it it definitely hurt america's credibility not just in iran but also around the world because now all of a sudden everybody's thinking well if one president can come in and overturn a treaty mm. then what is the meaning of the treaty at all so in many ways that had hurt america's credibility uh, tremendously and weakened america's position uh, in iran and and in the middle east mm. uh, some might argue that you know donald trump's hardline stance uh, helped bring israel and the arabs together because now all of a sudden america was uh, you know much more of a friend to israel and and the arabs but you know i i think that that would have happened either way because uh there were several economic and other factors that brought the israelis and and the arabs together anyway mm. uh, and more important i think to to the region and to american foreign policy interest was to stop iran from getting a nuclear weapon and that's what the nuclear deal was actually doing mm. uh and at the same time it was also building america's credibility within iran and and you know it was 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 buying a goodwill within iran which was actually weakening uh, the iranian regime so in many ways i think that that was a huge uh, strategic uh, drawback and uh, uh, you know america is is in some sense trying to pick up the threads again from there but it's it's going to get much harder now because there is a much more hardline regime in in Tehran mm. China is much more strongly involved in Iran uh essentially the middle east is far more polarized today and it's it's going to be very difficult for uh, you know america to 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 you know bring it back to that that track mm. mr zijan i want to talk about your book along with the role of india plays today i know you've written a book it's called a flying blind india's quest for global leadership now let's talk about going back to the article that's something that you wrote and i quote You will say India was looped in ostensibly as a regional economic power and a counterweight to China and as a link to the original quad in the Indo-Pacific. Now correct me if I'm wrong, when we look at Joe Biden's Indo-Pacific strategy, to me again, hopefully I'm not the only one that feels it's rather ambiguous when we look at this Indo-Pacific uh, uh Indo-Pacific strategy along with Australia, Japan, US and also India. Now this time that again in order to counter China and also focus on climate change other major uh, major issues now the UAE is really US and also India was also a uh, a uh, uh, playing part of the role as well so help us to understand what is the ultimate goal that India was trying to accomplish by joining two separate quads but seem to focus on the same purposes but meanwhile again at the author of your book india's quest for global leadership does this move or does this quad alliance actually elevate india's a uh, role in leadership can you help us to understand i mean india is just happy to sit in any table and you know be part of any coalition right now it doesn't <laughs> matter whether it's the shanghai cooperation organization Uh, or the quad or the i2u2 or whatever else uh, it's it's a, india is a part of many honestly very contradictory alliances this is a, this is a point that i make in my book my book is titled flying blind because essentially i'm arguing that india's foreign policy uh, lacks direction or mm. you know lacks a coherent direction and so india is an aspirant for global leadership india wants to be in the security council as a permanent member india wants to be part of all of the decision making councils in the world but at the same time india lacks a coherent foreign policy 
that would actually help it build influence and, and win over allies. Uh, and essentially, in that sense, India is flying blind. Now, if you look at India's foreign policy, India is a part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization mm. with China and Russia. Uh, India is a part of the Quad that essentially is an anti-SEO. Uh, India is a part of the I2U2, which is essentially an anti-Iran grouping with Israel and the UAE. But India is also somebody that, that counts Iran as a strategic partner. Uh, and, uh, you know, India has the uh, Chabahar port in Iran. Uh, India has been asking America to give it waiver of sanctions so that, you know, it can, it can trade with Iran. And for a period of time, I think it still does. Uh, India does trade with Iran with the with the Indian rupee so that it doesn't have to go through the U.S. dollar system. So in that sense, you know, there, there are a lot of inherent contradictions here between what uh, what India uh, is in one grouping and what India is in another grouping. Uh, some people consider this to be a strength. Others like me consider it to be a weakness. Mm. Um, and, uh, and the reason that it's a weakness is because you know, what happens when you are a very large country that's a part of rival groups is that at best you are considered a bystander in the fight mm. uh, because you've got your, you know, your legs in both boats. And at worst, you're considered a risk of sabotage. And then all of a sudden, your allies cannot trust you. Uh, in the SEO, Russia and China cannot trust you. And in the Quad, you know, America and its allies cannot trust you. So this is a dilemma and, uh, and a situation that India is facing right now. I think that in the aftermath of the Galwan clashes, uh, or, or you know, the clash between the Indian and Chinese army uh, in the Himalayas in 2020, uh, there was a, a shift in policy, or rather, people perceived a shift in policy. Uh, I don't know to to what extent, honestly, I can say it was a, a coherent shift in policy. But after those clashes, people expected India to become much more anti and much more virulently anti-China mm. uh, and America I think in particular expected India to become a much more reliable partner against China uh, you saw that in, in the aftermath of those clashes in 2020 India all of a sudden took a much greater interest in the Quad uh, and then when COVID-19 was going on you know India positioned itself as a, as a vaccine diplomacy, uh, diplomacy alternative to China uh, that didn't go very far because of India's own second wave and uh, you know various missteps uh, but India did show a desire at that point in time to try and position itself as a counterweight to China at least in the in the Asia Pacific at the very least in South, in South Asia uh, because India started to believe that China cannot be relied upon to ensure security on the border mm. essentially uh, in, in the Himalayas. So in some sense, China made itself an enemy to India rather than India perceiving China as an enemy at that point in time. But, you know, these clashes have happened in the past. Of course, the, the 2020 clashes were, were unprecedented in the sense that bullets were fired for the first time uh, and, and people lost lives as a result. But, you know, if you, if you look at India-China relations, you know, every few years, you would find that there is a flare-up in tensions along the border, uh, and then there are talks that take place, and then there is de-escalation, and then essentially people forget about it uh, in New Delhi. Uh, and then India is trying to balance itself between America and China once more. Uh, this time, that has taken a longer period. The de-escalation talks have not gone very far. Mm. Uh, you know, there has been de-escalation in parts of the Himalayan border, but clearly the 2020 clashes were 
in some sense greater in magnitude and therefore greater in impact on Indian foreign policy than the previous border clashes had been. Uh, and so in that sense, I think India is is more inclined to side with, with America now uh, than it was pre-2020. But how far that's going to actually lend to a coherent foreign policy uh, is honestly anybody's guess. And, you know, my guess is that it's not really going to bring about a significant change in direction. I mean, you can see the differences uh, already on, on Ukraine and, and other issues. Uh, India has differences with the U.S. and its allies on Ukraine. India counts Russia as a very important strategic partner, but then Russia is also a very important strategic partner to China. And so Russia, in some sense, has made efforts in the past to bring India and China together. Uh, if that succeeds, then again, India is going to be, you know, somewhat, uh, 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 you know, hesitant about uh, taking the quad for further as a quote-unquote anti-China coalition. Uh, for the time being, India wants to kind of play everybody and, you know, uh, sort of play each everybody off of each other. But for a large country to do that, I mean, if you're Singapore, you can do that. Whether you can do that being India with nuclear weapons and the third largest army in the world uh, and, and a very large uh, economy, that is, is, you know, is anybody's guess. It's not something that has traditionally worked out for mm. larger sized countries. Uh, uh, and, and so, you know, essentially, I think at this point in time, uh, India is testing everybody's patience and everybody is testing India's patience as well. Well, Mrs. Ishan, I think that's a very, very, uh, um, how can I say, reasonable way to say it. If India is trying to test the patience of everybody, well, surely India already received the answer from the U.S. And hopefully that India is going to hear the answer or any confirmation from China. But now keep in mind, again, that's something that you mentioned before. India, it's actually playing such a significant role economically and also politically in many organizations. But recently, India has been very active in pushing this economic agenda as a member in BRICS. You know, again, BRICS, that includes China, that includes Russia and also South Africa. You know, India was involved as well. So my next question to you is, do you think, again, as you mentioned before, you might put it in a very humorous way, but at this moment, is it too much for Indian government to bite in terms of enhancing or uh, expanding its allies? Because we know that the, the relationship between U.S. and China today is still in this cold deadlock. So in other words, neither of the side is willing to give up, is willing to make a compromise, despite what the international experts believe. Again, as a journalist that travel internationally, I still believe that none of the side is willing to compromise at this moment. Now, India is caught in the middle if, hypothetically, I want to be careful right here, if India is trying to bring much closer relationship with the U.S. by being this part of the Quad and being part of this I2U2, don't you think that India is actually putting himself in jeopardy with China in the long term? Because ultimately, there are more organizations which both India and China involved rather than India and U.S. partnership. What do you say, Mr. Zizan? In my book, I say that there is a fundamental uh, clash of, I don't want to use the word values, but that's the best way to put it, uh, between India and China. Uh, you know, India being a, democ a democratic power in the neighborhood, 
you know, in some sense, if India is able to become a more prosperous democracy, then that is an existential threat to the Chinese Communist state. Mm. And, you know, I, I think the Communist Party recognizes that and, and it treats India as a country that needs to be contained, essentially. And so my theory in my book and, and many of my articles uh, is that China wants to contain India's rise and that is why, you know, it keeps, you know, essentially poking it, it in, in, in the Himalayas, uh, essentially pricking all the time from time to time, making alliances with Pakistan, driving, you know, building or constructing a highway through Kashmir. All of these things are meant to essentially keep India preoccupied in the Himalayas so that India cannot play a more proactive global uh, mm. role. Um, and, um, you know, this theory would hold if India is a prosperous democracy in the neighborhood and the Chinese Communist Party perceives it as such. And there is there is some evidence of this that I quote in my book as well uh, in Chinese uh, public discourse, in the media, uh, in articles that are written by Chinese Communist Party uh, individuals and leaders and so on. Uh, they, they perceive Indian democracy as... A threat, and so therefore they routinely try to malign Indian democracy and show and tell the Chinese people, look, this does not work. Our model is better than the Indian model because India is poor and decadent and corrupt and so on. Now, if India, you know, ceases to be poor, decadent and corrupt, at least in in the Chinese uh, perception, then all of a sudden Indian democracy is a huge existential threat mm. to the Chinese Communist Party. And so, therefore, India's rise needs to be essentially contained. This is my theory. Now, in more recent times, unfortunately, Indian democracy has been backsliding. Uh, there have been more authoritarian tendencies within Indian politics. There has been polarization and majoritarianism. Uh, there has been oppression of minorities. There have been human rights violations and, and what have you. Uh, and so, what this has done is that it has actually brought a clash of values now between India and the United States as well. I mean, for the last about 20, 20 years or so, you've heard about this convergence of value between India and the United States, and to a very large extent it was true. I've written about it in my book as well. I've said that in the long term, if India remains a secular liberal democracy, then it will want a lot of the, the same things that, that America wants. Mm. It will want a lot of the same things at the UN, at the World Bank, at the IMF, and all these other institutions. And so India and America will collaborate much more. But now with the you know human rights violations or, or concerns of democratic backsliding in India, you've suddenly gotten a lobby in Washington that's actually speaking up against India. You've got people in the U.S. Congress that are asking questions about Indian democracy and, you know, talking about people getting put in jail and, you know, people being lynched to death for uh, eating uh, beef and all of these other things. Uh, and so I think in some sense, there are questions now that are being asked in Washington about whether India is a country that is really on the same page as we are. Yes, you know, they see China as a threat and so therefore we can collaborate. But is India really going to be a reliable ally beyond that? Is mm. India really going to be a reliable ally in global governance? Uh, is India going to stand for the same norms at the UN and at the World Bank and all of these other institutions? There are question marks now being thrown about in, in Washington, D.C., particularly amongst uh, Democrats and particularly amongst younger Democrats mm. uh, in, in, in Washington. And so I think it's getting to a point where 
India sort of probably realizes that it cannot put all of its eggs in one basket. Mm. Uh, you know, the Narendra Modi government wants to essentially diversify its interests in, su- in such a way that it does not completely rely on America for its security and it does not completely rely on China for its own security. It wants to be what Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, calls Atmanirbhar or self-reliant India. Uh, but at the same time, that's going to take decades uh, of progress. And, uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the meantime, you're still going to have to contend with America and China being much more powerful, much more prosperous, uh, you know, much more uh, uh, capable of doing damage than, than India is. Uh, and so in that sense, for, for balance of power calculations, uh, you know, India is going to have to try and build an alliance either with China or or with America. But now with this divergence of values or, or convergence of values, uh, uh, you know, depending on where you stand, uh, India is starting to think that it cannot rely completely on, on the U.S. Mm. either. Uh, and maybe there is an opportunity here perhaps for China to reach out uh, and, and drive this wedge between India and the U.S., particularly on the question of, uh, of values. Uh, and, and say, look, you know, Let's make the border question secondary. There is so much else that we can actually work on in the BRICS, you know, in the AIIB, uh, at the UN. India and China have been voting together at the UN on Ukraine, if, you know, if, 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 you, uh, if you notice. Uh, and a lot of what India and China have been saying on Ukraine are actually very similar in language. Mm. So I think there is an opportunity here really for China to say, look, you know, India is changing somewhat. Maybe we can actually reach out to to India and pull it away from America. But whether China is going to take that uh, opportunity, uh, you know, remains to be seen. Hmm. Well, Mr. Zijan, I can agree with you 100%. Again, not too long ago, I talked to another international political scientist, and one wise advice that he shared with me, he said, we are only in the year of 2022, and the best answer in terms of understanding this political and economic changes is only one answer that will be 